welcome to Sacred Justice, a podcast that features discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how they intersect with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. Join us for the journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sacred Justice. Sacred Justice is our new podcast that will feature discourse rooted in the pursuit of justice as sacred practice. Our weekly discussions will reflect on current events, art, media, theology, and how this intersects with the movements for freedom and liberation. We hope that through these conversations, we can foster inclusivity by expanding our learning opportunities. We hope to cultivate digital community beyond the confines of our campus. And we hope to reconnect the church's social and spiritual callings. I am Mia McLean and I am here with- Ben Boswell. <laughs> Let's get into it then. Yeah, we're, we're coming to you today from Catawba land. And we acknowledge the Catawba people, the people of the river, the host people of this land. And we give our gratitude to them uh, for being uh, good stewards of this land on which uh, we live and worship and come to you from to do this podcast. Uh, excited to be here for this new podcast, Mia. Yes, yes. I'm excited as well. Uh, as we've been talking about, Ben and I, we are beginning again. We are mm -hmm. beginning lots of things again. This whole <laughs> year, past 14 months, we've had to begin again over and over and yeah. so this is the theme and the topic for today's podcast. And I'm sort of stealing it from the title of uh, Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr.'s most recent book, Begin Again, which, Ben, you have quoted in sermons a lot. <laughs> I don't know if you want to talk yeah, about I'm, that. Yeah, I'm all about that Eddie Glaude book. I mean, that, well, I'm all about James Baldwin, so I'll read anything. And uh, Eddie's, Eddie's also amazing. But anytime somebody writes on James Baldwin, I will be reading that. And it's a great book on James Baldwin and a great follow-up. I've been, you know, recommending it as a follow-up for folks as they, after they go through the course that we created to, to kind of take them to the next steps after they've read some Baldwin to go read this book by Eddie Gloud. So, yeah. And I love the concept that he comes up with of beginning in. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also thinking that we are in the season of Easter mm -hmm. um, post-resurrection yeah. where we are beginning again in many ways, um, not in terms of the lectionary or the, the, the liturgical calendar, the traditional liturgical calendar, but yes. post-resurrection, you know, you think about the stories of Jesus and his followers having to begin their movement again. Um, yeah. And so this is the season that we're in. I feel like a lot of us are post-resurrection. We're post-crucifixion, the pandemic mm. crucifixion. We mm. are just starting to get glimpses of hope, resurrection hope. And, and mm -hmm. so now we are heading into the season of beginning. Well, at, you know, I don't want to have to quote for myself here, but in my, in my Easter sermon, in my Easter sermon, um, I talked a lot about how we're, reform is not the answer. Resurrection is the answer that uh, actually that was Palm Sunday. Reform is not the answer that uh, God provides or that 
the narrative life of Jesus provides to the problems of the world. Resurrection is the answer to the problems of the world, not reform. Uh, Jesus doesn't reform anything, right? <laughs> it's all resurrection. And so I think that's a, that's a, that's a, a, an epistemological shift that Christians sometimes need to make because we get really, really passionate about reform and gradual change and um, or changing things. I, I like to think about as, as controlled change. You know how you can do a controlled burn? A we controlled want, demolition? Yeah, we want controlled change. I'm in control of this change. Uh, of course, that's not really how change happens. It's often chaotic and disruptive. And, um, but yeah, we're, we're looking toward resurrection. We're looking toward new creation, Paul's language for resurrection. Um, and, you know, um, I think that this is a really good season for us to start something new. So, I mean, it's amazing to me how we're beginning not only this new podcast in the season of Easter, which is the season of new beginnings, but we're also in this moment of America being made new, hopefully, uh, or in it's, it's actually maybe more like America is clear. It's now clear America needs to begin again. <laughs> to use God's language. And we're also in this moment of like, we have, we have no choice but to begin again because of COVID. Um, and it's, it's like, we're not going back to normal. We're refusing the desire to go back to normal. Um, that, that sort of uh, nostalgia for normality. We're trying to figure out what the new world is that we're walking into uh, that COVID has given us. Yeah. Yeah. This new, this new world. A hmm. whole new <laughs> oh my god are we gonna get some singing on this podcast That's... you said art now you wrote that part into the description <laughs> art and music and things so I'm okay okay simple, all right i'll know, take the blame for that but yes um, I mean, when you come out singing aladdin from aladdin right out of the gate i mean that's <laughs> we're gonna definitely have to deal with pop culture and all that stuff yep yep speaking of so part of this podcast we are working in a new section called news and culture so that could be anything from reflecting on latest news stories, which there are plenty, or maybe a movie you watched or something that um, something that shook your theological imagination as we uh, fit with sacred justice, doing the work of justice and sacred practice. And so, Ben, is there anything that you have seen the past week? I mean, is there anything? What have you seen? What do you want to talk about with what you've seen? Because there's oh. so much. So... Well, I want to say here that this is we hope that this will become a spot where people will send recommendations to us of like cu cultural things that they want us to talk about. You know, a movement, a movie, a TV show, an album, you know, music, art, uh, a phenomenon, you know, that's happening. And we, we will wrestle with it. You know, um, Mia will probably already have wrestled with it on Twitter and we'll just bring it here. But we'll 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 try to do our best to stay current uh, in this with with what we talk about, you know, and, and so send us your recommendations. But for me right now, I am in this. Um, I don't know, I guess I would say, Mia, and this is such a white privilege statement, but I just don't have space right now to contain the violence in my brain. I, I, and I'm usually all over that. Like, I want to know the names of every victim of every mass shooting. I want to make sure I'm up on every name of every person who's been killed by police, every person of color being killed by police. Um, and right now I'm, I'm, I can't, there's so much, I can't hold it all in the same space. I don't have enough, I don't have enough space emotionally or even intellectually to contain the amount of data 
I'm having to process through as we're having a mass shooting every other day or every day, sometimes twice a day right now. We got Indianapolis. We just had, you mentioned Shreveport this morning. Uh, there was another one. They're just happening. And and I can't even keep up with the. And remember that the thing about that is so interesting is we didn't have it during the pandemic. There was this gap of ma no mass shootings for a while. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it was such a blessing. At least not at least not yeah. major ones, Ben, because we have to right. remember that a mass shooting is like four or Two more or people are people. shot. Yeah. Um, and so maybe it was maybe it was happening, but certainly at a smaller number. I mean, it, it, so far what I've read online, we've had like 135 in 2020. I mean 2021. Mm. 2021, there's been 135 mass shootings. Which means there's more than one a day, right? Yeah, we haven't had 132 days yet this year, have we? I don't know. I'm guessing. I mean, we what 90? Yeah, yeah we, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're like we're averaging more than one a day, which is worse than it was before the pandemic. And I think so. One of the things that that raises up for me is we have we have to talk about what kind of new beginnings do we care about and that we want to we want to nourish because uh, we have monstrous new beginnings. And we have holy new beginnings. And this is a monstrous new beginning. Or you might even call this a return to normal, uh, a new a new beginning of of what we already had, which is which is a, a society that is bent on its own destruction um, through through violence here. So I'm, I'm really having a hard time containing all that since it's happening every day, sometimes twice a day. And I'm just and I'm still continuing to try to process through um you know, all the, all the, you know, police killings as well. And the names of all the police killings and the situations and the distinctions between the situations, um, which sometimes is an exercise in futility, you know, did this person turn away? Did this person get in their car? I mean, the bottom line is that a police, per a police officer shot and killed a person at a routine traffic stop or serving a warrant and they didn't get to go home to their families. And then there's that guy, you know, who, trapped the white guy who trapped a police officer with his arm in the car and drove off and ended up at the police station totally fine without a scratch on his body. And so the, to me, again, illustrate this illustration of the asymmetrical violence and the asymmetrical police warfare on black and brown bodies is it, I just I'm carrying that and trying yeah. to do that. And that reform is you know, sometimes what comes out of these things is, oh, we're going to add a body camera. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And it proves to not really mean anything because people are still mm -hmm. dying. Um, right. And people are and, and people who are killing are still not being convicted or, you know, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a fan or advocating for the carceral system, but we see the inconsistencies. And so um, that brings me to my news slash culture story, because I don't know if you've seen this video on Twitter of this, um, I think it's a lamb that is stuck in a ditch or, or something. And a kid mm. is trying to pull the lamb out of this ditch. It's like this really long gaping hole in a street somewhere. Okay. So the kid gets the sheep or the lamb free. And the, I will call it lamb. The lamb bounces out and starts running away and falls right back into the ditch. Mm. And I thought, what an amazingly unfortunate metaphor for this work that we do called justice. It just sort of mm. feels like we are pulling people out of ditches and we're, we're, you know, we're wrestling them out. We're 
feeding the hungry and clothing the homeless in many ways the system is so broken that they go right back into the ditch right like it's mm. just it needs to be the whole ground needs to be dug up like the whole thing needs to be turned over burned mm. down Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just sitting with that today. Of course, everybody was laughing on Twitter about it because it's such a funny video. But then, of course, I have to take it to the next level because that's, that's who I am. But, yeah, you find the sermon in the ditch. You find there's always a sermon. Mm -hmm. I'm going to preach that later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking that's also that's also true of like, you know, that met, that lamb metaphor could be a metaphor for like also for like white people or for America. Right. It's like we and the black freedom movement and it's like because of white backlash you know we we do liberation and then we reinvent the ditch mm. so then, then we do liberation again and then we reinvent the ditch again you know and i was just thinking about you know it's like slavery jim crow lynching war on crime war on drugs mass incarceration in there we throw some redlining sprinkle in some redlining and restrictive covenants and we have this we're just replicating slavery by another name every every time we can throughout whatever means we can which is back to your point about re reform so I, I was talking about this with with somebody the other night and i think it was one of the best conversations i've had about this sort of defund the police abolish the police abolish prisons defund prisons movement and I think the place that was interesting, because we were on different sides, like I was saying, I think defund is important. Like we need to think about that. And um, this person was saying, no, 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 defund is not helpful language because you're not actually completely defunding the police unless you're abolishing them. And that, in that case, you might as well just say abolish because defund and abolish are the same. If you take all the funding away, you're abolishing policing because you can't do policing without money. Right. You can't do anything without money in a capitalist economy. Hmm. So it was kind of this like, what are we really saying? Why are we saying defund when we really mean abolish? Is it if we're trying if what we're saying is reallocation of funds, that's not a good marketing slogan. But if we're saying reallocation, let's say reallocation, you know, because there will leave some semblance of policing in place and some semblance of prisons in place. But if we're going to if we mean abolish, let's say abolish and not say defund. Let's let's really mean what we say and say what we mean. Um, but I, I think one of the best points that the person made, this is where we were able to agree, is if you mean by abolish, um, you know, we, we have to get rid of this thing we have and then put something new in its place that does community safety, then I'm for you. But what's the thing? Like, we want to know what the thing is that's going to be in place. That's where a lot of people depart ways. But so I think that the, the thing is that what you're saying, when you get to that point, what you're saying is we need a new beginning because the thing we've got is so rotten, we can't salvage it. You know, yeah. you can't put a rotten tomato out in the sun and it's going to get better. You know, it's just going to get more rotten. The tomato is gone. It's done. There's nothing you can do with a rotten tomato. Or to use another example, bad apples, right? You, you, can't, you can't redeem a bad apple. You know, even if I, I don't believe in that whole bad apples theory, but you can't redeem a bad apple. You either got to eat it, make it put a pie, make it into something else. Right. Or yeah. throw it away and get something new to eat. You know, so it's this begin again, again, becomes the the language that we have to wrestle with. And I, I think I know this is maybe another segue, but I think this is the logic of scripture and hmm. the logic of what we see in the divine 
uh, and sacred work of God in the world is a call always to newness, new creation, whether it be the beginning uh, of the creation out of the chaos, whether it be the the new creation, the the image of the of new creation that we have in Isaiah sixty five, um, or what we get in Paul with new creation language in Second Corinthians and Galatians, or what we get in Revelation with a new heaven and the new earth and the and it's interesting. I was looking at this comparing Isaiah sixty five and this kind of new creation that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 65, where I'm about to create new heaven and new earth, the form of things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And then comparing that to like then Revelation and Paul, which are also riffing back on Isaiah, right? So they're yeah. they're riffing off of Isaiah. The one change that I saw this time is that in, in the New Testament, the language of all shows up. Whereas I don't see that as much in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, in, in, in Revelation and in Paul, it says all things are being made new. Yeah. All things are being made new in Revelation. Not just we're going to make a new thing. No, no, no. We're not making one new thing. All things are going to be made new. And that's that all that sometimes we don't lean into uh, yeah. as people of faith because we're scared of the all. Yeah. It means that all things have to change. And change is scary. I mean, it's okay for us to isolate change or compartmentalize change. Um, you know, yeah, we'll change this little thing over here. Like you were saying earlier about controlled demolitions or controlled, uh, whatever you were saying. Fire. Yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. You know, it's one thing, we're gonna change this little thing over here, but I'm gonna have to change every, you may have to change everything. And this is a part mm. of beginning again. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to give some space for a section of the podcast where we actually reflect on quotes, okay. um, you know, to, to have some time to sit with some of the thinkers that we've been reading um, who are talking about this very thing. Um, and because we've been sort of floating around this language of change, one of my favorite writers um, is, well, I would say this, I wouldn't say one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite pieces by this writer is Parable mm -hmm. of the Sower. Um, mm. by Octavia Butler. And I've referenced her uh, a couple of times in sermons, I'm sure. Um, she has this beautiful uh, refrain, God is change. All that you touch, you change. All that you change, changes you. Um, but that's not the quote that I'm, I'm using today. This quote is from the beginning of chapter three in her book. And she writes, we do not worship God. We perceive and attend God. We learn from God. With forethought and work, we shape God. In the end, we yield to God. We adapt and endure. For we are earth seed and God is change. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's this other one that I want to read from the beginning of chapter six. Very short. It says, drowning people sometimes die fighting their rescuers. Mm. It's like that sheep. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that's, I, I will say more later, but I do want to give some space for you to, um, to reflect on the work of Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr. in that book, beginning again, if there's a quote from there that you yeah. want to share. Uh, a little bit, maybe a little bit longer quote than you had. Uh, and um, no less poetic though, because he's quoting from Baldwin. Um, so I'll, I'll read this um, 
to frame it, it's kind of the end of it's the end of uh, begin again, right before the conclusion. This is the last paragraph before the conclusion, and he's kind of framing how uh, Baldwin did not necessarily call for a third founding of America. You know, we have folks who say we've had two reconstructions. We had reconstruction after the Civil War, which is the first reconstruction, and we had second reconstruction, which is the civil rights movement. And, and the changes that happen there. And we, we are in need, they're saying, of a third reconstruction. Now, that's not language that Baldwin used. Baldwin used kind of a different, more spiritual metaphor. But I'm going to read that. And this is Gloud writing. Baldwin did not call for a third American founding. Instead, he worked tirelessly for what he called the New Jerusalem. To my mind, there is little difference between the two. Both call for a world and a society that reflect the value that all human life, no matter the color of your skin, your zip code, your gender, who you love is sacred. In his aftertimes, Baldwin understood that something new was desperately trying to be born, but the old ghosts had the baby by the throat. He wrote in the epilogue to No Name in the Street, an old world is dying and a new one kicking in the belly of its mother, time announces that it is ready to be born. This birth will not be easy. And many of us are doomed to discover that we are exceedingly clumsy midwives. No matter, so long as we accept that our responsibility is to the newborn, the acceptance of responsibility contains the key. Mm. And then Gloud says, that was 1972. The labor has been long and hard and the new world has yet to be born. We are now in our after times, but responsibility has not been lost. Whatever happens next will be up to us. Hmm. Responsibility. Mm -hmm. Responsibility to the newborn. See, mm. This is, I think, what this is, I think, what the the biblical witness and in, in scripture, and even I think Butler is trying to teach us that uh, the responsibility is to the thing that is becoming new. Mm. We don't have responsibility to the old that is dying. We have a responsibility to the new that is coming into being. And I heard recently this amazing thing where um, in, in Ella's song, the song Ella Baker wrote, um, which kind of has that chorus, uh, we who believe in freedom shall not rest. Uh, a number of the verses of that song are about the responsibility to the young people in the movement. We believe in the young people that we will get out of the way and let the young people lead, that we will, we will support the young people. If we can teach something, if we can share some wisdom, we will, but that they are going to do what we couldn't, that they have the potential to go where we wouldn't go, uh, to face things we were too afraid to face. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's also, when we say the responsibility to the new that is coming into being, it's also the responsibility to the next generation yeah. that is coming behind us, yeah. Yeah, which sort of brings me back to that, you know, quote from Octavia in, in that particular chapter about people die, you know, uh, fighting their rescuers. Mm. And I just think about in terms, of, even in the context of the church, right? That mm. uh, so many churches, I don't think ours is, but so many churches are dying, um, though we all have potential, uh, are dying because they are fighting the people who are trying to come in and help and bring new stuff to bring change that's going to be life-saving and life-giving change into mm -hmm. our institutions. I mean, even when you look at, you look at churches, you look at sort of um, uh, 
folks who are in that millennial category and younger struggling to get employed, right? Because we have these people who are generations older, uh, perhaps wiser, maybe not, who are sort of holding on to power. Um, and even when we're talking about this justice issue about police brutality or just about you know, shootings, right? That a mm. lot of the people who are in power are not the people who are the grassroots who are fighting for um, uh, ontological shifts to be happening. Um, and, and a lot of them are younger people. They're like 15 year olds out here, right? 15 year olds mm. are, are, are holding uh, people to the fire, to the flame. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not seeing the sort of fast progression because the people in power are comfortable. In many, many ways, the people in power are comfortable. Yeah, and I think there is a, a lack of urgency among those in power. And for, thank God, there is a sense of urgency among many who think that the world may not be there for them when they are my age or, you know, my parents' age. So they are, they're, they're, this is why I love the term extinction rebellion. I think that is like every social justice movement should take on the terminology extinction rebellion. Yeah. Right. It's like because we are all bent on our own human extinction right now. And we have been about human extinction for a long time. And we have not reckoned with the fact that we are killing ourselves through a whole bunch of different ways, um, whether it be our economic system, whether it be the racial injustice, the history of white supremacy. You know, I mean, I could go on environmental injustice, you know, the way we we treat women, the way we treat uh, people, same gender loving people, LGBTQ people, trans people, we're just bent on our own destruction, you know? And again, it's all, uh, it kind of goes back to that control. We want to control the change. Yeah. We don't want to allow change to be, you know, I was, I think I was mentioning this to you on the podcast. There's a podcast called the Emergent strategy podcast, and they are very influenced by Butler. And in the beginning, they say we are about getting in right relationship to change. So they're using like, Christian church language. Reconciliation. Right? Yeah, like yeah. we need to be in right relationship with God. You hear that from preachers all, all the, but there's, instead of God, they put change. We need to be in right relationship to change. What does it mean to get in right relationship with change? I think that's just so fascinating. It's made me, listening to that has made me really rethink uh, my own faith. Well, Butler has done that a lot for me. And so, so have indigenous writers and authors have made me rethink the assumptions that I had that were at the foundation of a lot of the doctrines and belief systems that I have as a part of my Christianity that need to, they need to be kind of turned over. Mm, mm, yes. <laughs> yes. And that's uncomfortable, right, Ben? So what is it if we, if we shift toward looking at church, what is what is that discomfort and how do we how do we walk that fine line between wanting to push toward change and also recognizing that it, it can be painful it can be uncomfortable um i'm thinking a lot about as we begin again as a congregation to to come back together in some form it's going to look different and some mm. things are going to be different what is that fine line that we need to walk yeah, I think the well, let me just diagnose the problem first, I think. And then I think maybe we can figure out the line. I, to me, it's that age old issue that you've heard a lot, but I think now it is amplified and intensified at it at the highest level it's ever been. And that is there is nothing tied down anymore. I don't know if it ever really was tied down, but I mean, like, imagine we're on a ship and, and all gravity shifts, right? We're on a 
spaceship and we go into zero gravity, everything starts to float. That is life right now. Nothing is tied down. Nothing is magnetized. Nothing is Velcroed down. There's nothing that's tied down. I'm talking nothing. The family, what the family will be, our, our governmental system, our economic system, um, the way church works, every aspect of our society, business, eating, drinking, friendship, community, parenting, name it. It's none of it's tied down. It's all in flux. Some of that is a symptom of post-modernity that we live in that whatever. I don't even know if that's a real term. I don't know if you can be post anything, but yeah. the, the, the sort of particular point within modernity that we are in, nothing is tied down. There are no givens anymore, um, right? Nothing is stable. And so in an arena of radical instability and extraordinary dynamic change, we go to the places that we think we can control. And one of the places that we think we can control is church because we want to keep it the same. We need something that is somehow familiar to us, so that that resounds that sense of familiarity, the nostalgia for a previous day gone by that seemed simpler with less problems. In fact, it had worse problems in some ways and even more entrenched issues that we were blind to, but we want to go back there because we were blind, right? Ignorance is bliss. So we want to go back to the ignorance of the past, the blissful ignorance of the past where things were not as complex Church was not as focused on social justice. Things were not, people were not dying every day from mass shootings. Everything was not political. Politicians were not as corrupt. Yes, they were. But we pretend, we imagine they weren't, right? Yeah. But with, when the world with everything is not tied down, we go to church and we want to tie everything down with chains. I'm talking like chains that you could pull a tugboat with, chains. And we chain everything as tightly as we can because... It's the only place we have that we think we can control the change in. And the reality is we can't, but we can, we can, we can kill the church faster by grasping onto control and trying to control the change. So that's what's happening all across the world. I, Bill Leonard just had a, an article, I think we'll share it in the weekly and next week mm. about how rapidly churches died in COVID. So, you know, we already had 4,500 churches dying a year. So 4,500 churches were dying a year going into COVID. And it was like something like that per month through COVID. It was ridiculous. So, I mean, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, what you and I have struggled with over the last year is like, you can fight technology and try to resist it but you will lose. It is a losing battle. There is no win. You can't win against that. It's the kind of change that if you resist, you just die, right? So it's sort of like what Octavia is saying is we're the drowning person and technology is coming to save us or God or whoever, and they have tools with them. Maybe technology is the life raft or whatever, the, you know, jump onto this floaty so you can, I can bring you, or here's the stick. You know how some of the pools used yeah. to have the sticks that they put in? you know, and we are like, no, get that stick out of here. You know, we don't want that. Um, but we just die faster. You know, you it know, doesn't that, mean we die, but. That, that brought up something I was thinking about earlier today. You know, as a child of Hurricane Katrina, I watched so many, church, not, and I'm not talking about churches that literally died because they went underwater and nobody could 
afford to repair them. I'm not talking about those churches. I'm talking about like the churches that I grew up in and some other places that they may not be dead, but um, they uh, they were deflated significantly by um, by Hurricane Katrina because what that space allowed for some people these sort these seasons that we are hopefully about to come out of like this often give a lot of people permission to leave and do other things that didn't have permission before and so the dying is of course could be about technology and some other you know resistance to change but i also think some of the death is because it's giving people permission to say i don't really like that place anyway or, mm. <laughs> or mm -hmm. why was i going there why was I spending all my time there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why was I so addicted to being in charge? Right. Mm -hmm. or, or whatever, whatever their processing is. Um, and so how do they begin again? How do we begin again without them? Um, because there is a sense of loss in the, in the, in the change. And I don't think everybody is up for the journey. And so mm -hmm. then we have to deal with that loss and deal with that grief. Um, and so what is that like? And I know we want to get to the kind of the fine line and how do you do it, but any reflections on on that? Oh man, yeah. I mean, I think what is in, you know uh, what does intensity prove? It makes you actually. This is I'd say like a lot of things do this, but intensity, like an intense crisis, um, makes a lot of things that were priorities become that you thought were priorities become less important, or you reshuffle what matters to you. So one of the ways where a lot of people are talking about this is like, if you were a person that was in my life and I didn't need to see you for the whole pandemic and I was still fine, maybe you're not that important a person in my life right now. Like we're fine. You know, uh, there's people thinking about that in terms of their friends, not like colleagues or something, but like, but like they're friends. Right. And people may be thinking about that in terms of church members, but um, as far as friends are going, you, you know, if you didn't need to even talk to some, like pick up the phone and call somebody and, and talk to them in the pandemic, maybe they are not a person that's, you know, really that important for you at this stage in your journey, in your life. Right. Um, I think what happens in the pandemic, uh, with these kind of crises is that a lot of our priorities begin to be reshuffled and shifted. Mm -hmm. So it's real easy to like, not you're out of the habit of going to a place for worship. Now you get in the habit of watching then you get in out of the habit of watching and now what how are you going to come back to it it's a it's a habitual thing right it's about habits and healthy habits and good habits and we prioritizing the good over the other things that are not so good and i just think that there are people who maybe weren't that serious about church and maybe didn't really need to be and they didn't really need it in their life for whatever reason and they're they're not coming back you know yeah. and, Maybe I think everybody needs church or whatever. That's okay for some people to think that. I don't know if that's true, but I but but I can't force people to reprioritize all their lives now. You know, um, maybe there are some people it was really clarifying for them not to be there every week. You know, good or bad. For some, they really missed it and they became even more committed. They're like, "This place is amazing. I need this." People. Others, for whatever reason, it was like, you know, I really didn't. I wasn't that invested. I, I thought I was, but I wasn't really, I'm really not that invested. You know, it's a clarifying thing. COVID yeah. has been clarifying and intensifying, and it's also reprioritized things yeah. in our lives. Yeah. So what and are we I'm talking learning, about? The line between what? 
<laughs> yes, the line. So I'm getting there. So so I'm learning to have grace with people as they journey with myself, with mm-hmm. others, as they journey through these cl- clarifying conversations that they're trying to have. Um, oh, yeah. And so and so then I'm trying to practice that same grace when we are talking about this line that we must walk when we're really trying to push change or or push a, be- a new beginning but also wanting to take people with us and not leave them behind. So what is like, what is, I mean, I can talk for myself. It's, it's a, it's a constant learning process for me because I will move at the speed of light. Like let's get this done. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's taking you so long, but then I can do that and then be going, I can be at my destination by myself. Is that really worth it? Mm-hmm. So any reflections on what that line is for you or what that line could be for churches, for people of faith who are trying to, also have this uh, forward movement who also want to begin again, um, but don't want to leave folks behind if they don't have to. Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's hard because as Baldwin points out, and this is true not only of America, but of church as well, and our own lives actually too, our own soul work, is we have to be responsible, primarily responsible to the new that is emerging and not the old. And that makes us, I think as clergy, we have to be, we have no choice. If we don't, then we're part of the architecture of death. <laughs> but um, so, so it's hard. Sometimes people will talk. I, I feel like I'm at cognitive dissonance with people because they'll say, well, you know, why don't you care about this as much as I do? And I'll say, it's not that I don't care. It's that I've had to make a I've had to make a commitment to be more responsible to the new that is coming into being and the new world, the new birth, the new creation, because that is a calling. That's my calling. And that's also what I think Baldwin calls us to in America. I think that's what Christ calls us to. That's what God is doing through the Bible. And in and I think that's actually what it, Butler means in, in being in right relationship with change. To be in right relationship with change is to be taking responsibility for the new that is coming into the world, the new, the new being that's coming, the change that's coming in and figuring out how to be in relationship to the change. Now, I mean, that doesn't mean all change is good. This is where people get caught up, right? Um, Good is a strange word, but like it's not all going to feel good, (laughs) right? Yeah. And it might not feel like we, you know, it might feel like the kind of thing we want to resist, you know. And so that's where we got to figure out how to get in right relationship to the change that's coming. Either the change is something we might need to resist or it might be something that we need to figure out how to roll with. Um, So there's a lot to wrestle with there sort of philosophically. But particularly within an organization when it's all of us together, you know, individual people should be given the freedom to take as much responsibility for their own lives as they want. Right. We got to give them that freedom. And that's why personal responsibility is never going to be the answer to the world's problems, because how do you hold people accountable? You can't make that a mandate. You can hold organizations and institutions uh, accountable to a different set of goals and strategies and guiding principles. And, and that's where our churches comes in. You know, if it was, if we were just running a number of individual lives, if you gave us, we could give, we could give people different plans. You're on the slow change plan. 
you know, like a, like a cell phone plan, right? You sign up for a hundred dollars a year and you get the slow change plan. You mm -hmm. keep giving, you're participating and we let you experience the world as slow and as familiar as you want. And then we have the middle plan, which is kind of like a little bit of change, but not too much that it's overwhelming. And then we have like high speed plan. It's I like, need high speed. Yeah. And so, but the problem is we don't, we don't, churches don't offer plans. We don't offer a variety of plans. We're not a service provider, right? Who can offer you, you buy this much internet or this much speed or whatever, or this much roaming data or, you know, uh, cloud space or whatever. You know, we're just, we're trying to do what God's work in the world. We got one, we got one plan, you know, yeah. <laughs> and we're trying to make sure as many people can come along with it. But at, at the same time, I still think the principle of change management always holds true. And that is that there's always going to be 20% of people in your congregation who are going to go along with everything you're doing because they're sold out on the institution and you. And then there's always 20% of people in a congregation who are going to fight everything you do because they're not even sure they should be there and they want everything to stay the way it always has been. They're the control, control folks. And then there's 60% of the people in the middle could go kind of one way or the other. They're not sure. You know, they're still trying to figure out, figure it all out. And to me, it's like you always want to worry about the 60. The 60 is the people to worry about. Right. You don't want to worry about the 20 who are always with you. They can't make all the decisions for everybody. The 20 who are always against you. You can't let them determine everything for everybody. You got to work with the 60 who are trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. And they're not always going to be sometimes need some convincing and some persuasion and some conversation to and dialogue. Um, and so, you know, you get the 60 and now you got 80 you got the 20 that were already agreeing with you and that, then you can kind of move a church forward but i do think it takes time and um but i i think it starts with that commitment i mean if, if we're not talking to one another on the same plane if we're not both committed to the new thing god is doing if we're if we're committed to the old thing god did in the past and i'm talking to about the new thing you and i are never going to talk yeah right I remember when I, one of my first sermons here, I asked, uh, actually, it was, I'm not even sure it was in a sermon. Maybe I did. I think it was the first sermon I preached. I said, are we more in love? Are our dreams, wait a second, how did I say it? Are our, um, are our dreams about the past bigger than our dreams about the future? Hmm. So, for instance, when folks in our church look back at the past, it's like the glory days of Marnie yeah. And Owens, it's also the glory days of when church all over the world was amazing, especially in America. You know, it was like the Iron Age. Bill Leonard calls it the Iron Age of church because they were building a church on every block for years and years and years. You know, and it was interesting. Gene Owens' tenure, who was our third senior minister, his tenure ended at the apex of the beginning of church decline. Wow. <laughs> so like. He comes to the end of his 20-year tenure. He's the third senior minister in the church's history. And at the end of his tenure is, is one of the years where they start to track rapid church decline, right? This is late 90, mid to late 90s, mm -hmm. right? And that's when everything from there, you know, goes, everything goes crazy from there. Um, and it's just been worse every year since then. So when we look back at the glory days, we look back at the time of Owens and we see this, you know, grand thing um, thousands of people and worship and stuff like that. And it was just, um, it was, we were also a, re a reflection of a cultural moment. 
not just doing great things ourselves. And so sometimes we, our dreams about the past are bigger than what we can imagine for the future. And I think we have to dream bigger for the future than when we look back in the past. Ben, as we, as we begin to wrap up and think about what is it like, we're going to be continuing these conversations about beginning again. So this won't be the last one. And I have some special guests up my sleeve, but I, um, I do want to talk a little bit about a theological reflection. You've talked a lot about new creation and some of the scriptural references that help ground, help ground you as a leader, as a spiritual leader, um, especially as we go, go toward change. Um, and one of the things that I, I live by is Genesis one. I mean, I can, I, I will preach it until the day I die probably, but there's this idea that the conversation continues. And I think that particularly, uh, uh people of faith have difficulty with this because it sort of challenges the text a little bit um, to say that after day seven, that there was other days that happened after that, that matter. Um, but that's sort of the theology that grounds me that we were all given permission to say, let there be with God um, mm. over and over again. And I think for so many church folk, it's like, no, 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 God stopped at day seven. So, you know, that's it. That's it. We're not, or, or, you know, senior minister emeritus stopped at day seven or whoever was in, mm. you know, whoever is part of their like um, mythology, their mythology mm. of a space, you know, no, 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 that was them. They were, they had the power. Um, and I, I sort of feel like when you were talking earlier about people taking responsibility, there's a sort of way that people shy away from that kind of responsibility. They want to be in charge of various things, but they don't want to make the, they don't want to say, let there be necessarily. Mm -hmm. Many people don't. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. No, no, they don't. You know, I was reflecting as you were about how interesting it is to me. I always bring this up, but that Genesis was written in the exile. Now it may, some of the stories may have existed in oral form, but when it was written down, that means when they decided which stories go in what order and how the chapters are laid out and how it begins, and isn't it interesting that in the middle of exile, while you are being oppressed by uh, either the Assyrians or the Babylonians, you're in exile, you're being oppressed by a foreign empire, that you write a creation story where all people are created in the creation story. And it's not it's not just Israel, because mm. most creation stories that were created were the were the foundation of how a nation was made, not all of humanity. So they tell a story about all of humanity and then the birth of Israel comes later in Genesis, right? The story of the birth of the, the community is a late, it's a calling, right? A calling out of the empire. And, and the, so the Genesis story is, first of all, it's an egalitarian story of that all people are made in the image of God, regardless of what nationality, that's a beautiful thing right out of the gate, right? But the fact that they wrote that in exile, to me, it's like, even though we think of Genesis as the beginning, it was really a new beginning because it was being written in exile. And they were saying, this is how we want to start again. This is how we want to begin again is with a new thought uh, about how we are all really connected. And then Israel was created in this way, but we were all, we're all human beings. We're all united in that humanity as being created by God. And we're going to begin again with that story while we're sitting here in exile being oppressed. To me, there's something beautiful about that. Mm. Uh, and so it's kind of how it's very similar to the way in which 
people of color are calling America to begin again in the midst of, of occupation, in the midst of oppression, saying we got to start over because we don't undersee each other's humanity right now. We're not treating each other as, let alone as Americans, certainly not, not even as humans. Yeah. And so that's why we got to start over. Yeah. Oh, that, that piece beginning again in exile. That is Ooh. so, I have to, I'm going to chew on that. I'm going to chew on that for next episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> beginning again in exile. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Listen, Ben, this was a fruitful conversation. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I'm glad we're getting started with this podcast. This is so yes. fun. We're excited to take you all on this journey and we are open to your feedback and thoughts. So if you have any questions or comments, please email me, Mia McLean. Uh, you can email me at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Let me know your thoughts and we'd love to incorporate them into our episodes. Until next time, thank you. See you later. Bye -bye. Friends, that was our episode this week. As always, please email your questions and your suggestions to Reverend Mia McLean at mmcclain at myersparkbaptist.org. Until next time, take care. This is Sacred Justice.